Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as Leah said, if you're visiting today or if it's been a year and you haven't been, been here for a while, welcome back and it's great to have you. Uh, thanks for joining us today for one of our gatherings. Um, so preaching-wise, right now at Hiawatha, we just started a series in the book of 1 Timothy. It will last through, uh, I think, the last Sunday in August. So it's kind of a good uh, summer series for us. 1 Timothy is one of um, the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches uh, in the New Testament. But this is actually unique because it's actually a letter to an individual. He has a few of those of his 13. Uh, we call these um, the pastoral letters. So First and Second Timothy and Titus are letters that the Apostle Paul, the guy um, who went from Christian murderer to uh, apostle, kind of chief apostle and a church planner. So his story uh, is kind of the arc in some ways of these letters as well. He brings his own narrative uh, story into it too. But he writes to uh, young pastors. And so they're called pastoral epistles because they have to do with pastoring and, and the church and uh, what a pastor's job description is, what, uh, as he says in chapter three of this book, what uh, behavior should look like in the church. And so um, it's not indiscriminate. It's not random. Like God cares about his bride. He cares about his church and how things should happen and how order should kind of be, uh, you know, put into place uh, for gatherings and things like that. How care and love should be given to people, especially those who are hurting in the church. Uh, preaching and teaching come up a lot, as you might expect. And so um, I said last week, I think too, so there'll be times in the series where we'll kind of step aside and uh, talk right to pastors in the room or those of you who um, might be a pastor someday because it is in some sense, directly uh, directed towards shepherds uh, of, of, of churches. Uh, but it's broader than that as well. Uh, this is not just for pastors. It's for the church because it's about churches. It's for all, Christian or not, because it's about Jesus at the end of the day. Anytime you talk about a pastor, you, by definition, talk about the chief pastor of our souls because he is, in true pastors, he's in them. He is one with them. And so, um, we'll talk mostly, actually, about him, and, and again, invite us all, myself included, to just entertain that one great interpretational question we always should, which is, where is the gospel in this book, in this passage? Explicit or implicit, where is the good news of Jesus Christ uh, in, in each section? So we'll do that today as well. All right, so let's read. Uh, today we're going to look at prayer, God's heart, and, med- and mediation, just three big themes that come up, and... Um, yeah, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. If you have a Bible or a phone app, want to turn there, that's great. But this will all be on screen, one slide, in fact. So let's just read it here to begin. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so what we're going to do today is talk about, as you kind of see in this passage, he spends a few verses on prayer, and then he, um, he talks about Jesus, and he kind of digresses it in a way into these really key descriptors on who Jesus is and what happened on the cross. So uh, I know you guys are all over the place spiritually. Some of you maybe aren't Christians yet. Some of you have been for a while. Wherever you're at, this will hopefully be a very helpful and, I mean, ideally worshipful 
um, unpacking of exactly who God is and what is the gospel and what it's not. Uh, because we tend to not hear these descriptors sometimes when you just kind of talk to the average person out there. Um, or maybe hear them kind of come through your feed and be that voice in your social media feed and be that voice in your head in wrong ways as to who Jesus is. So more on that in a little bit. But let's start with this first thing, which is pretty clear right off the bat that, that Paul, Paul is saying to the young pastor, Timothy, churches should be praying communities. And that might sound kind of obvious, depends on your background, of course, with church and so forth. But I think God invites us to be freshly moved here by how much of a priority prayer gets in a New Testament letter like this about church life. So what should churches look like? What should they do? Uh, prayer, as it says here, for all people is right at the top of the list. And, and so, but let's look at this more closely. So he says, first of all, well, first of all, he says, first of all, right? So it's, very, it's a priority, prioritizing kind of thing. He, um, and I think it goes back to last week too when he, when he talked about waging the good warfare Speaking to pastors and all Christians, really, we, we engage in a spiritual war with our message and our love, and I think also our prayers. He's kind of clicking on that uh, phrase, wage the good warfare, and this new website page pops up, and it's all about prayer, praying with a wartime mentality, praying for all people uh, that they might be saved, provided for, and um, mediated to God, and that we might be thankful for them as well. So kind of interesting here, too, how he talks about it, right? He defines prayer with different words, um, breaks it down into different types of prayer. And I don't think we should get, overthink the differences too much here because in one sense, they're, they're all prayers, but there are some differences. Um, so look in verse, or verse 1. Supplications are prayers for the provision of others. Um, intercessions are prayers for those in dire need with an emphasis on their salvation. Um, thanksgivings are directed towards God for the good expressed through them to us. So it's a way just to say, thank you, God, for the kindness you're showing me or the provision, the grace you've shown me through this person, Christian or not. So, but note, though, that prayer, at least here in context, is exclusively for others, not ourselves. So praying for ourselves is obviously a good thing to do. The Bible talks about that in many places elsewhere. Um, so this isn't like a, a comprehensive definition of prayer. But he is saying here to the young pastor Timothy and for his church, churches should be praying communities for their cities, for leaders in their cities, for people of influence and for all, people of non-influence, just people that uh, live around them, that they know, Christians in their church, non-Christians outside their church, praying for all people and expressing God's heart for all in their prayer. All right? That's kind of the what's. All right, so a lot of times when you read the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, there's what's and there's why's. So there's uh, do this or think this way or a statement of fact of some kind, a rhythm Christians should maybe li uh, live in, like communion's one of them. We'll do this a little bit later on. But then there's the why. Why should we do it? Why, in this case, why should churches be praying communities? Why is this a priority? Um, he gets a little explicit here, but also we kind of widen out, right? The, the Bible talks about prayer elsewhere too. So three quick things um, as we ask why. Uh, why should churches do this? Why should individual Christians um, build this rhythm in, into the life as well? Three things. One, prayer flows from grace. Uh, that is to say, it flows from a mindset that says, I am incapable of saving myself. And I am incapable of saving 
others and providing for them. I need help. Uh, the more we believe help comes from within us or apart from God, the, the, less the reality is the less we're going to pray. If we think that help ultimately comes from us, from a choice we make, from a strength that we have, um, the, the less we will cry out to God for the, these types of things for ourselves or, again here, for other people. It also positions us as receivers. Uh, if you um, look at that phrase, thanksgivings for all people, that's another way of saying every little bit of good that comes through people, Christian or not, is something to thank God for because all good, Christians believe this or should, all good only comes through him. Jesus says at one point in his uh, ministry, there are no good people in the world. Like, no one's good. Uh, there are, there, no one's good except God alone. He's kind of blanket statements that out there, right? Uh, we believe all good comes through um, or from God, and it might channel through us. It's always a gift from him. Second is related, and I'll put them together by saying uh, prayer flows from grace, or because it flows from grace, prayer pleases God. This is verse 3. This is good when churches do this. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The right kind of grace-shaped prayer pleases him. Uh, and not necessarily all prayer, so we kind of put a little asterisk there in your mind, because we know that there is a kind of prayer from elsewhere in the Bible that displeases God, it, it, that's a stench to him. In uh, Luke 18, as one example, Jesus tells a story and says there's this religious guy, he's called a Pharisee, but he approaches God in prayer and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector, another guy praying right next to him, even this guy, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all that I get, God, thank you so much that I am so amazing for you. And that's my, my addition there at the end. But that's basically what, he, what he's saying, right, in prayer. And as Jesus goes on to say, this man with that posture before God does not go home reconciled his creator. He stays uh, an enemy. He stays irreconciled to God. It was it, because it was a prayer of, and it's more than the prayer. It's where his heart is. Uh, but a prayer of self-justification. It's not a cry for help, not a prayer that flowed from grace, but a prayer that flowed from works. And this is why, this is a, a perfect example of why we talk so much about living out of grace, uh, being strong in grace, Paul says elsewhere, living out of the gospel. Uh, a, a true heart shaped by the fact that we're not saved by what we do, but by God's grace, we'll just start to pray this way. We'll start to have a heart shaped uh, more towards God and towards others. Uh, not like the prayer of the Pharisee, um, but a prayer that's dependent, a prayer that flows from grace that selflessly prays for others and is tirelessly thankful. Uh, those kinds of prayers actually do please our Creator and our Lord and Savior. So th this becomes very important, uh, right, for, for true believers. So prayer then is not, what I love about this is prayer is not a merit uh, itself, right? The, the whole point of this is to say, kind of pulling from Luke 18 as well, rather the type of prayer that pleases God is actually by definition meritless. Uh, the kind of prayer that actually brings, that, that you know, brings honor to God and, and is glorifying to him and pleases him is actually a meritless prayer. It, it is uh, done only in response to his love, uh, not to serve as one more notch in the ladder. All right, then finally, uh, prayer also images Christ. And, and this is 
this third point is to say, look at the words given to describe prayer and ask, how do those words themselves kind of house Jesus? How do they represent him? How do they drive us to the gospel themselves, even though on the surface, these are things that we're called to do uh, in prayer. So prayer images Christ, especially I'd say um, a type of intercessory prayer that prays for people's salvation. So what's more, Paul says pray for kings, for all people, which, which would have included their enemies, right? Even their persecutors. Uh, so think, we can say this today as well, but think first century uh, Christians weren't adored by, by Rome and, and by the Jews. Uh, they, they were persecuted. So Paul's saying pray for all people, pray for kings, for those in leadership, pray for the centurions you walk by when you walk down the street um, who hate you, the tax collectors robbing you. The idea then is that like Christ stood between God and us when we were still enemies, still God-haters, and interceded for us with his death and advocacy, so now do we intercede with prayer. So not in the same way. We don't spill our blood for people, obviously, but we represent and resemble Jesus when we stand in between God and lost people and say, God, I'm no better, please save them as well. It's a very actually moving, powerful privilege that we have to approach the throne of grace and say, as a son or a daughter of the king, Father, save them. And, and that, that is, man, there's, there are so many things that kind of depict what the church should be in the world. That is a big one. That we are a community of enemy prayer praying for our enemies, serving as an in-between or a go-between in Christ. He's the only go-between. But in Christ, serving as that go-between in prayer and begging God to save more people from hell before it's too late for them. One commentator I read on this said, and this is a kind of a dust statement, but, but maybe not, <laughs> and kind of helpful. He says, God never wills we pray against anyone. God never wills in the Bible that you pray against other people. Uh, pray, now, he wills that we pray against evil and sin. He obviously wills our repentance. We should pray against the devil and his influence in our lives and our world. There's countless things to pray against, but God never wills we pray against other people. The worst of people, the, the ones who've harmed us the most, our greatest enemies inside or outside the church. Uh, there is not a pattern in the Bible to pray against people. Instead, Christians pray for the benefit of all people. That, um, that person that just really hurt you yesterday. Today, uh, pray that they'd be saved. Uh, pray that God would change their heart. Pray that God would provide for them. Uh, pray for that their life would even um, be more blessed than yours. That they have more comfort in life than you. Uh, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He wanted your comfort more than his own. So, um, Prayer then is, is not, it's not just this utilitarian kind of functional thing, uh, what could be said is that. It's more than that. It's imaging Christ. It's in how he loved you, his enemies, while you and I were still in that state of, of um, rebelling against him. Okay, so going off of that then, so we, we start with prayer, and I, like I said before, I think Paul starts this way and then kind of digresses on this idea of you want to pray for the salvation of others, but knowing that we were those others, right, uh, for a while. We were unsaved. Those in the room were Christians. We weren't at some point. People prayed for us. God moved through those prayers and, and moved in our heart to be saved. 
And he spins off and digresses on the heart of God and the way of salvation. I want to read this again, or these couple of verses from the section. Such a good segment of Scripture. Uh, some of you maybe have never read this before, and I'm excited for you uh, that you can read this with fre- all of you with fresh eyes. But if you've never read this, look at how Jesus is described. Uh, notice how the, the Bible clearly shapes what Jesus came to do And then kind of by extension and definition, what he didn't uh, come to do, um, even sort of, as as we would kind of say here, against um, very progressive uh, views of Christianity that kind of soften and dilute the gospel from these things. Let's read. Verse 3, this is good and is pleasing the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. All right, so let's start in verse 4, mid-sentence. We talked a bit about verse 3. Verse 4 gives us this really intimate glimpse into the heart of God. It says that he desires that all people be saved. And, And sometimes when reading that or a verse like that in the Bible, it's easy for us to want to or some of us, to take this huge, justified, but huge theological digression and ask the age-old question, well, if that's true, if God desires to save all, why then are not all people saved? And Christians have taken uh, primarily one of two paths uh, with that throughout history. But I don't think that Paul here intends to make more out of this than what it says. He's saying, to go back to verse 1 and 2, We should pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. Pray for all people because God desires all to be saved. So note the link then between our prayers and intercessions for non-Christians and Christians that they might persevere in their faith, but for those who are not saved yet, as reflective of God's heart to save them. So God desires all kinds, I would say, um, a way to kind of understand the spirit of this then, to kind of avoid the digression so we don't miss the, the point, is to say God desires all kinds of people to be saved. He has always, always has had a heart on the nations and amongst a church, all kinds of people. And that's what I think is more important for us to see in, in this passage. The idea that Christianity is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the exact same time. So Christianity is for all because there's no precondition to salvation. It's not for the cleanest or the privileged or the most spiritual, but nor is it only for the victim or the disadvantaged or the outcast, as some prefer to say. But instead, it is for all. Like in the book of Acts in the New Testament, if you've read that, we see how the gospel goes to kings and Caesars and governors and the rich and centurions, but it also goes to the poor and the barbarian and the slave and the sick and the most unlikely and everyone in between. It goes to good people and bad people because God shows no partiality and the gospel is not bent on or drawn to like a moth to a flame are... Uh, self-perceived moral goodness. It's not responsive. It's, uh, you know, it is, um, it is prevenient, uh, theologians like to say. It's a prevenient kind of grace. It acts before we do. 
Uh, and so it's the most, it, in a lot of ways, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in existence without a close second because it is in this way for all kinds of people. No matter what has happened to you, what you've done, what you've thought, it, it doesn't, it's not preconditioned on that or responsive to it, but the gospel goes out to find us before, even before we're seeking it. Um, that's the good news. And yet, on the other side of the coin, the gospel is also the most exclusive. It's the most narrow of ways because there's, it claims there's only one God and, more than that, there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, God in humanity, the man Christ Jesus. So I want to look at that phrase with you guys for a few minutes. Uh, again, this is one of those phrases I think are uh, loaded with truth, uh, but also for the sake of our happiness and our joy, uh, but for our alignment. Remember, Paul's writing this to a pastor. You know, if it's not explicit, at least in the subtext here, Paul's saying, Timothy, don't you dare stop preaching this. Never stop calling Jesus a mediator to Christians and non-Christians. He doesn't stop that role. There's, there's no elite form of Christianity beyond that. And we'll get to others here in a second. We talked about intercessors before, right? Same kind of idea. We'll start, though, with mediator, the, the mediator side of the phrase, because there's two words there, obviously. Mediator-like intercessor implies that, that there's a need for a third party, right, to come in between two factions. Uh, like if, if I said to you guys, so-and-so's in need of, in need of a mediator, you'd probably say, well, from whom, right? Like there's, there's someone else that they need peace with. And so a third party uh, comes in between. In this case, though, it's between God and sinners. Jesus is the mediator between God the Father, as God the Son, but between God the Father and sinners like us. The difference, though, between how we normally think of mediation would be that God wasn't this out-of-control uh, angry being who needed to be calmed down. That, if anything, that was us. We were that person. We were that being. But God, though righteously angry at our sin and rightly angry at our sin and full of justice, he calmly, patiently, and lovingly provided a way himself for that mediation. And that was through Jesus. That was through sending his own son to die for us as, as one of us. So I said a couple of weeks ago that this... this uh, key part of Christian theology is such a huge thing. And, and Paul has already talked about it in almost every section so far in Timothy, that Jesus was a blend of heaven and earth. Jesus was the coming together of the spirit and the flesh, of the divine and the human. He was born, the Bible says, of woman, but not of man, of woman, conceived of by the Holy Spirit of God. And without that, we lose everything because either... He's not divine and he can't save us or he's not human and he can't die as one of us, right? So it all falls down between us. But Jesus is a mediator in his fully divine and fully human uh, makeup. I, I've actually talked a lot with my family. It's a bit of a uh, digression here for a second. My family a lot around the dinner table um, these past few years about how maybe my, my kids are, and my wife are prolific readers. I'm the pastor and I'm not as much of a reader as as they are. But anyway, uh, I mean with fiction and stuff. But they, um, we, we talked a lot about how maybe this is why, this idea, maybe this is why our culture has such a fascination with demigods right now. I don't know if you guys have thought this before or not or seen this motif play out a lot. Um, 
but, but we have. <laughs> and we've noticed this, like how um, characters who are a mix of the human and divine fill things. And the idea is that um, maybe even for those of us who are not saved yet, that sometimes we, we, we see Jesus in the world uh, more before we actually see him. You know, we almost want him to be true before we actually believe him to be true. Uh, the Bible says God writes eternity on our hearts, all of us. In the spirit of that, he writes the story of the gospel sometimes before we even realize that it's there. And so in the meantime, then, we have all these stories that we love, right? And we flock to and we can't stop writing them. Stories of demigods, stories of characters like in mythology, like Hercules and Perseus. Uh, Stories in the comics like Star-Lord, if you're a fan of the the MCU uh, or just the comics. Or in literature like Harry Potter, who's a half-blood. Or in young adult fiction like Percy Jackson. Uh, Or Disney films like Maui. Um, The list goes on, right? But but I think in some sense we can't stop writing these stories. There's something about them that intrigues us. And that maybe deep down, even before we're a Christian, even when we're we're anti-Christian, we still see and perceive that there is a gap and there's a need for a a go-between, someone to stand in that gap. uh, And it has to somehow be someone who's from both worlds. And so we write stories. And so we yearn for these things. And we get excited about them. We feel them. And, And as we say here a lot, and many have said this before, but there's only one ultimate capital S story that all other stories come from. And everything plagiarizes from the gospel in a sense. Uh, Jesus is, in that sense, he's the ultimate demigod. He's not in the truest sense of that phrase, of course, but he is the solution. There's a problem that only a demigod-type figure could solve. Not a religious ideology. And I think what that says is that Christianity is not a religious ideology to follow, but a mediation to accomplish. All right, and so th- then, so off of that, you see, it's important for Paul then not just to say Jesus is a mediator or that there is a mediator, but that there is one. In other words, not two, or not three or four billion, but, but not two. Uh, th- so this, now, that phrase does not just mean that Christians are monotheistic, though it does. It also means we are duo-covenantal. By that, I mean... The story of the Bible is a tale of two mediators that mediated two different covenants or testaments or formal write-ups on how a holy God would or could relate to fallen sinful creatures like us. It's dynamic. It's not flat or static, the story. It's mountainous. It's dynamic. It's full of twists and turns and contrasts. The two make up the contrast. So the fact that there's not one is crucial. Uh, so, but in the Old Testament, the mediator was the law. It was the Ten Commandments. It was a do this and then you will live with me. Do this and then you'll live in the land. Do this and then I will remain and kind of live around you, a type covenant. But in the New Testament, it's not that. In the New Testament, the mediator is Jesus alone. It's not Jesus and the law. That would be to say there's two mediators, but only one. That is Jesus and his work for us on the cross, Christ and him crucified. So that that means for us so much, but that means that what stands between you and I and God is not any type of moral requirement or obligation, no type of religious ask, 
But what stands between you and God now forever is God's Son alone. That doesn't mean the gospel has no bearing on our life. It just means that, that as we're being saved, after we're saved, for all of our life, we should not add in another mediator between us and God. Don't live like there's two. And we, you guys all do this. I do this. We, you might not think you do, but we do. We all live in an if-then kind of way. We all default to karma if we're not constantly checked by the truth of the gospel. Um, we, all, we, we all default to legalism. It just, it just, that's the point of the Bible is to expose that narrative and say, Adam and Eve dealt with it. Uh, there are two sons, Cain and Abel, or Cain did especially, but, well, they both did, but they did. Genesis 4, it's right there at the beginning, and then it just steamrolls all the way through the story. We're in the same story. When Christ comes in, he interrupts that way of thinking. He replaces the law. In other words, the law was not a baton that Moses passed to Jesus when the Testaments changed. And we think this way sometimes, but he didn't do that. It wasn't a baton. Jesus isn't holding the Ten Commandments in his hand like Moses did. Moses did that, but that's a failed covenant. The do this and then you will live covenant is replaced by the believe in Jesus and then you will live covenant. And he in his hands only holds grace and truth in the cross. All right, and then he ends with this last word, or I'll make this the last thing, the ransom. Rant, he, it says he, ga- he gave himself. Again, this is heart of God stuff, right? He gave himself as a ransom. Gave himself implies willingness. Uh, have that in mind here as well. But ransom, of course, means payment, right? The Old Testament utilizes this word a lot uh, in regard to salvation, The idea being that we were imprisoned and enslaved by sin, but a ransom could be paid to free us. But not before adding, so it says all that, but not before adding these little, um, you know, roots in the path to kind of trip us up a bit and make us think about these things. Like Psalm 49, one great example of this, where, um, where it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Okay, so the ransom principle is put in play, but the Bible clearly says you can't pay it. You can't do it. Cost too much. You'll never have enough. Stop trying to pay it off with your good works. It'll never, ever happen. So the Psalms speak this way. The prophets, um, this type of prophetic literature, they speak this way as well on kind of the heels of Jesus coming. Jesus even talks in these terms as well, too, before he dies on the cross. He teaches in parable form about it in one place in Matthew 18, one example where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but in the parable he says, your sin debt is 10,000 talents big, uh, which equates to 200,000 years of labor, conservatively. Oh, that's all, right. Let's get started. No, we, we probably won't get started, right, if we're confronted with that idea. If someone says that your sin debt is 30 years of labor, you might get started. If it's a day, you probably would for sure, right? But, but the point here is Jesus is saying it's impossible for you to save yourself and it's impossible for you to stay saved yourself. It's impossible for you to pay off your debt and stay in a relationship with God based on your moral aptitude, based on your, this is why the covenants shift, based on 
the two, the two mediator mentality, which is Jesus holding the Ten Commandments, which is an abomination or should be for us. This is what makes this so beautiful. It's impossible for you to pay your ransom, but Jesus can. The Bible says there is one who can pay it. The Bible says in Revelation 5, when John is crying because no one was worthy to open the scroll, he sees this vision of a scroll, no one's worthy to open it, and he's weeping, and yet there's one who can. It's the Lion of Judah, it's Jesus who comes in, the one guy who's worthy to open up this revelation of God and to make sense of all mysteries and ultimately to save us from our sins. The scroll of our salvation is only opened not by you, not by me, not by any person, not by any angel, but by Jesus. So that's what makes this so rich. He gave himself as a ransom. And of course, the money then is his blood, right? Not actual money. Uh, Acts 20 says, Jesus bought the church with his own blood. And so, what I want to do here to start to wrap up is hold out these words to you guys. Um, I felt like this week, this was, you know, in my own reading, this was just freshly confronting uh, for me. But I know you guys are in very different places, and that's good. We love being a community of uh, people in very different places spiritually. Um, But wherever you are, look at these words as clearly, explicitly, indicative of what Jesus came to do. And think, when you think of these words, what do you think about? What images are conjured up in your mind? And, and I'm guessing, you know, just from a worldly perspective, it's darker imagery, right? Like ransom, that means I'm, ho- I'm held hostage. Or mediation, that means I've got a problem with somebody, in this case, God. Like that's what, were things really that bad? And this is why I think this is so helpful is left to our own devices, we will never define sin, the severity of sin, enough. It will always be diluted. And if you understand the solution the right way as so big, then the problem that it came to fix will also be so big, right? And so intercession was necessary for you to be saved. Mediation was necessary. A ransom had to be paid. And not just a little bit of money, like the the blood of the Son of God needed to be spilt. And so it's it's sort of two two kind of paths. It's it's like we, yes, things are that bad, but the point is not to just feel bad about ourselves. It's to say, where do you go underneath the weight of that bad news? And, you know, Paul holds up as one one finger, right? So there's, there's one mediator. It's like Dr. Strange, right? Infinity War, it's sort of like 14 million futures. And he's like, how many do we win? You know? There's only, it's like the urgency in that, right? When he did that, when he did that you're like, oh, okay, let's go. Let's get to, to the urgency that comes with one mediator, with intercessions necessary. The son of God's blood had to be spilt. I mean, either we run and cling to the foot of the cross, bathe in the blood, or we get offended by it and say, yeah, I just don't believe it's true. And we get back to work trying to pay off our 200,000 years of labor debt. It's ridiculous. It's a stench to God. God doesn't want that. He, you know, there's so much in the Bible about God being offended by people's good deeds 
done not by faith. Not bad things. Good things done, uh, the Bible says, by the flesh or by, by the works of our hands. When all along he's trying to hold out his own nail-pierced ones and said, no, look, look what I've done. Put your hands in my nail-pierced scars, Thomas, and believe. Uh, it's constant. It, it ne- we, we never stop. We never stop eating the bread of the communion of, of that idea. And so, so let me just say, um, let me s- kind of end with this. If you guys go back to verse 2, um, I, this is sort of one more thing to kind of hang your hat on before we go. I think there's, backing up, at the, look at this passage, I think there's like the great exchange is kind of happening here too, uh, where you have in verse 2, this desire Paul has for Christians to live a quiet, peaceful life. Uh, but then there's also these great, you know, terrible but beautiful depictions of Jesus on the cross. And so what I like from the 30,000-foot view is you have Jesus gets the treatment in this passage and in our life and in the story. Jesus gets the treatment, we get the quiet, peaceful life. You see how unfair that is? The gospel's unfair. The gospel is not just, and this is an injustice that the Son of God died among criminals as a perfect human being. This is, uh, grace is unfair, uh, but it's love, you know? Um, we get to, we, Jesus is alive now, praise God, but like this reality, like we go home, we rest, we eat with our families, we cook out with our friends, we have peace but Jesus is the one who didn't have peace there with his own father and towards a dying world crucifying him, right? He let out a loud scream so we could quietly rest in his grace. You see the contrast here? He's the one that went to work. He's the one that intercessed. He's the one that did the hard work of mediation. He paid the ransom. He loudly screamed so we can rest and quietly live and be at peace and close our mouths and stop trying to self-justify before God. And instead with self-justification saying, thank you God that I'm not like this bad person, instead our mouth changes. And now we say, God, thank you for saving a bad person. That has to change or it brings into question if we've really understood the gospel at all. Right? So prayer is like, prayer becomes, bring this full circle, prayer becomes this like outward sometimes not perfect, but this depiction of what's happened here, how we pray, who we pray for, becomes this, like, have we been shaped, right, on the inside? Do we believe we're enemies of God who have been made sons and daughters by grace or not? And that's going to shape behavior in the church, but ultimately, and better than that, our, our doctrine. All right, let's pray.